Now, I know you think I'm like a hard, cold captain of industry type. That's not all there is. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Hello, everybody out in Radio Land. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Gary. <laughs> what is this talk of Suzanne Mitchell and Gary? Say hello to the nice people. Hello. <laughs> I'm Gary Mans. <laughs> I continue to be Gary Mans, and I'm looking at the clock and go, what the? Yeah. yeah. We're off. We were, we were off like all morning this morning. We were late in everything we did today. And we're lucky we're here as quickly as we are. But George Beam's here, right? We're going to be getting to him in a moment. Oh, yeah. He showed up. He's on time. He's on. He's George military. Is, he's got to be on he time. He is military. He is on time. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's saluting. He's a good man. And the other good man who's in the studio who works with us Friday in and Friday out, keeps us on an even keel. Bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Very happy to be working with him, as always. Benny, I'm going to get serious for a minute. Let okay. me tell you something, okay? Oh, oh I'm okay. watching MSNBC, mm. as is my want, and they had the, the new, you know, the election stuff, Warren dropping out, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then they got to the coronavirus, and they were talking about the epicenter in the U.S., which, as you know very well, as well and all of our listeners, of course, we're talking about Washington State, and in particular, Puget Sound and the east side of Puget Sound. Lo and behold, Benny, they showed the frontage of Bothell High School with the school closures. Now, I need to tell you that for 10 years, I cohabitated most pleasantly with Suzanne Mitchell before we absconded down here to Sarasota, Florida. And Less than a half a mile from where we lived. It was our neighborhood. Yeah. We walked we walk past that high school all the time in just walking around and getting our exercise. exercise and know. there they had the frontage, Bothell High School. I jumped off the couch and I'm yelling to Suzanne to come out and take a look at this. Never in my life did I think that I would see Bothell High School, our old neighborhood, featured so prominently in a public health emergency. So I've got to ask you, how are you folks holding up? Uh, I think. Pretty good for the most part. I mean, it, if you want to just look at obvious, traffic is a little lighter this week. Uh, less people at work commuting in or they're staying at home, which is, you know, an advocate for, you know, trying to just stay safe. Unfortunately, our little death toll is kind of taking a little bit of a rise. Nothing major. But, you know, more and more of the larger companies, too, in, including like Amazon and Microsoft, they're taking all the, you know, the... Uh, necessary precautions with the schools. Yes. Um, there's actually Hazen High School, which is in my neighborhood in Renton. It's been closed down uh, for most of this week, along with Bothell and some of the other school districts are taking the initiative and doing it as well. It's just preventative measures, obviously, and they just obviously want to get this uh, nip it in the bud ahead of time, you know. So it, it's been a wild week, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, trying to get ahead of that, yeah. trying to get ahead of that virulent curve mm -hmm. that is. It's it's national news, as everybody knows, but it even seeps down into local markets because right. Suzanne and I, as most of our listeners know, reside in Sarasota, Florida. and We do this thing via Skype, but it is borrowed on the news feed from ABC mm -hmm. and our local affiliate will play. You'll see it on the 6 p.m. news, the 11 o'clock p.m. news. 
coronavirus and here's Washington State and buildings with which we are familiar and they're showing Kirkland and go, oh my God, that's our neck of the woods. It really is surreal and not in the good way. Yeah. yeah, and actually just posted on one of our local news stations, University of Washington uh, announced Friday that that would be today, uh, just a few minutes ago, that UW campuses will no longer be meeting in person through the end of the winter quarter, which isn't too far from the end of their quarter. But again, they're just making the moves as well, just to try to stay ahead of the original uh, outbreak, which kind of came from that nursing home in Kirkland area, which is close to Bothell at the Life Care Center, uh, the residents yes. there. So. Um, yeah, it's kind of wild. It's in our backyard. I've never been so oh. much put on the map as anything else like well, this. It's kind of it's, yeah, it's wild. Right. And you're looking at a national map <laughs> where right. all you know, so many of the deaths are right there in the state of Washington. And Gary and I just slap our foreheads and go, mm-hmm. "Oh my God! Oh my God!" I mean, yeah. we have a lot of, of friends and colleagues out mm-hmm. in Washington State, and of course, we wish each and every one of them the very best of health and to stay safe. To yeah. say the least, you are in our thoughts. Yes. Thank you. And we haven't we haven't been done yet. We're not done with it yet. So hang on, because coronavirus yeah. is going to be discussed momentarily, although our honorable gentleman of the hour didn't know it, but we definitely want to get his point of view. George Beam is with us, pop culture maven, as I like to refer to him. Suzanne, we've got some mad props for him, and let's bring the man on air. We do. I'm going to take this from the jacket of one of his books, George Beam has published more than 30 books. I would say he's probably getting pretty close to 40, which have been translated into more than two dozen languages worldwide and have appeared on numerous bestseller lists, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Los Angeles Times, and Publishers Weekly. A former U.S. Army major in the field artillery who served on active duty in the National Guard and in the Army Reserve, George Beam and his wife live in Southeast Virginia. Gary and I were talking about numbers today, and it's interesting that this appearance by George Beam today is number 13, Gary. Okay. So welcome once again to Manson Mitchell, George Beam. So glad to have you on with us. 13, it's hard to believe. Um, you know, it was interesting. You were talking about the coronavirus. Uh, yes. I actually, I actually wrote a book called Straight Talk About Terrorism, Protecting Your Home and Family from Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Attacks. And um, what struck me was that what we're seeing is basically fiction turned to fact, meaning uh, in 78, Stephen King wrote a big novel called The Stand, in which a flu virus got out and decimated most of the Earth's population, leaving only less than one, uh, fewer than 1% uh, standing. And uh, it's just kind of a forerunner of what's happened now, because, you know, in China, they could have stopped this thing and contained it if they hadn't been so concerned about the political repercussions. And so instead of going into a quarantine and a lockdown, they went ahead and simply had the doors open and even when the doctors there were saying on social media that there's a problem and people need to look out and gave an early warning as early as December, the Chinese simply ignored it. And suddenly we have a worldwide pandemic. You, you know, what's interesting about 1% is it sounds really, really, really like a tiny, tiny, tiny little number. 1%, one out of 100 
But when you look at it worldwide, 1% is not a small number. It's a gigantic number. And I remember for a brief period of time, I was working in a direct mail marketing company. And when they put out their brochures, they thought 1% was a wonderful return. If we got one order back out of every 100 that we mailed out, they thought that was great. So even though 1% doesn't sound like a lot, it can run a business and it can be a pandemic even at 1%. Well, 1% of the world's population is 80 million people. Yeah, and, and can you imagine having to to take care of, cremate, and bury 80 million people worldwide? Oh, my God. During the well, Spanish you have to flu. Remember that, you have to remember that, that in Europe, when the Black Plague uh, was started and, and swept, swept uh, west, there were an estimated 200 million people that died. And they had no choice. You know, no, and that would have been a much higher now, percentage... Right. The population. problem we have now is that uh, this particular virus is one for which we have no vaccine. And the trials, the human trials required are going to take about a year. So this thing is going to run its course until they simply uh, quarantine and identify the people who, who have had it and uh, start backtracking. I mean, this is a tedious thing. And in the meantime, you're going to have more outbreaks. And George, I did want to ask you about that in a little bigger context, because people have pointed out in the media that the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, during the time I got my father was born in late August of 1918, and his family thought he wasn't going to make it. They thought he was a doomed baby. He never caught it there, but they were just terrified of it. This this was the, the public fear, the, the pandemonium around this. And yes, there were bodies being stacked and burned because you just had to mm -hmm. get rid of this contagion as, as well as you could. And that brings me to my question for you, George. If we look through history, you mentioned the Black Death, the Black Plague, and we have the Spanish flu of 1918, which went away toward the end of spring and people breathed a very temporary sigh of relief and then it came roaring back in summer. And that's when most of the deaths occurred, if I understand the situation correctly. So here we are with a pandemic. Started in China, now when it hits America, nobody has been hit harder than Washington State. And I ask you as a man with a solid military background, George, how do you assess the preparedness or the lack thereof of the United States government in response to this burgeoning pandemic? Well, right now, there's just a lot of questions that we don't have answers to. Um, and I think that the U.S. does take does have to take the lead because of the resources that, that we have. The problem is that the Chinese uh, leadership does not really fully understand that when China coughs, the world catches the flu. And the way to have stopped this was to stop it from the very beginning, dial it back to when you have these open-air markets where you have uh, wild animals that are being sold for consumption or for pets. Uh, I, real, I think real, recently they decided to put an end to that practice and, and outlaw it to prevent the next pandemic. But if, it all, if all it takes is one bat to infect one, say, rabbit, and, uh, and then the rabbit is sold in an open-air market, and it transmits from the animal to the 
human host, and then it starts multiplying, that's a huge problem because once it starts multiplying, it incubates, and you're not necessarily going to show signs of, of contamination immediately. Um, so then you have a problem where you have asymptomatic people out there who don't know they have it, who are carriers, and they transmit it. And then you're trying to contain those people by saying, gee, do you remember who all the people are that you came in contact with? And that's virtually impossible, even on any given day. I mean, if you were to tell me what you did during the day, you couldn't recall every single person you came within six feet of. It's just not possible. So that's sure. the problem is that uh, at some point you reach a tipping scale where already we don't have enough resources if the problem becomes worse because there's only so many hospital beds. Uh, right now they're rushing to get enough uh, diagnostic uh, tests distributed so that we can be prepared. And, of course, what the real problem is is the fear of the public so that you've got places that have sold out on hand, pure, hand cleaners, hand purifiers, masks, and all of these other things. Uh, and the ripple effect economically is going to reach into the trillions of dollars worldwide. So, you know, it's, it's, it's important to remember that we really are living in a global village now. And with airplanes taking uh, people all over the world, all it, all it takes is a half a dozen people, and suddenly you've got a contagion that is worldwide. George, when you were in the Army or serving on active duty in the National Guard and the Army Reserve, did you were you even remotely involved in anything having to do with this kind of a contagion? Well, yes. Uh, I had a top-secret clearance when I was on active duty and in the reserve, reserves and the Guard, and one of the things that I did was I had to teach a lot of classes. And so I taught a lot of classes about nuclear uh, warfare, about biolog biological warfare and chemical attacks. And, uh, and then I wound up writing a book, a book about it for Potomac Press. Um, the thing is that the military is, is a little more informed than people that are in it uh, because they have to deal with that on the battlefield as a potential threat. Um, so, but civilians, by and large, have been exempted from that. And so when something happens, uh, this is brand new ter territory for them, and they're thinking, oh, my God, you know, we better rush out and get this and get that. Uh, the problem right now is that we are really in the early stages of this. Uh, the contagion started in December in China, and now it's taken three months after that, and it's started to spread worldwide. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. And President Trump, uh, I think, is wrong in saying that when the warm weather comes, that will be the that will cause a decrease in the uh, lethality of the uh, virus. Uh, I don't really think that's the case. I think we're just going to see this thing continue until it finally is contained. Uh, so that's what we're fighting now. We're fighting a war that. If it's not contained, it's going to be like pushing back the ocean with a broom. Right, <laughs> right. <clears throat> and it seems to me that communications coming from the White House, which diffuse down through the federal government accordingly, there seems to be 
very troubled in its attempt to, as I see it, constrain the information that reaches the public. And the result of that, as you know, George, is that you don't know what to believe. Well, and that's exactly what happened in China. They were concerned about the political ramifications, about telling people about something that exists that suddenly is going to be a problem. And rather than admit that they have a problem and address it, they went ahead and put their heads in the sand. Uh, I think that the critical issue here is to have bona fide medical personnel get on the media, as CNN had done last night, and explain to the general public in terms that the public will understand that you know this is where we're at, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing, this is what you should be doing. And uh, this is not a political issue, it's an international, global issue that is firmly uh, cemented and held the health of the entire uh, planet. We're very susceptible to this kind of thing. We definitely are, and I can think of some nightmarish scenarios that would be worthy of a Stephen King novel and movie. Like, for example, you I want mean, to go wrote, to see... He already wrote that. He wrote that book in 1978. He wrote The Stand, and that's exactly what it's about. Yes, yes. I can still remember my cousin sitting in his den, reading The Stand utterly enraptured there with all his chaos. He had six children, and the place was just lively, to put it mildly. But he found a way to get absorbed in that story with a cup of coffee and his hardcover copy of The Stand, and the rest of the world didn't exist for him while he was reading that book. So people get absorbed by other things, George. For example, let's say you want to go see your favorite baseball team play, and the stadium will seat 50,000 or more people. What are they going to do about that? And at the neighborhood level, what are people going to do who are churchgoers? I know I'm going to be doing my worshiping online because the church that I'm involved with, mainly Centers for Spiritual Living, is what attracts my interest. There And most of them have an online presence so that you can watch these services rather than hazarding being in a congregation, which if you live in Florida means that the most vulnerable population that we've seen so far, the elderly, populate these services, and that's not where Suzanne and I choose to be. Right. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I was thinking uh, when I was watching uh, Biden talk the other night uh, when two women had met, two young women had managed to get on the stage and get fairly close to him. I was thinking, what if one of them had the coronavirus and coughed in his face? Uh, ah, you know, because yes. older people are much more susceptible. Um, you know, we're just not used. We're such an open society that we really don't understand how quickly these kinds of things can take root and spread. Um, and that's a, that's a big problem. I mean, it's going to change a lot of things this year. A lot of conventions have already um, been canceled. A lot of companies are saying, well, we're not going to send our people overseas for these meetings. Uh, major events are being canceled. Uh, con right now, the Japanese are dealing with what they're going to do about the, uh, the Olympics this year. Are they going to hold them or are they going to postpone them? Uh, another big question is how is this going to affect the election? If we have a real problem, people are not going to be showing up in big rallies, for one thing. Uh, will they be showing up uh, to vote? Uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions at this point, and we really have to rely on the facts as opposed to people's opinions and as opposed to any political pronouncements from 
the Trump administration. We have to really rely on the uh, center's CDC information and, uh, and Dr. Fauci. I think he's with the Institute of Health. Uh, we have to rely on science to give us the, the true north direction to go to on this thing. And I believe, well, first of all, thank God for Dr. Fauci, who was one of the men who discovered human immunovirus, I just always call it HIV, there and saw what it was and its transmission and, and the ability of this virus to mutate so rapidly, creating what we know as AIDS. And he was the man on our side. There was a medical team in France that was competing with him for the distinction of discovering it. Their combined efforts saved countless lives in the world and told us what we were dealing with. So now we have him on the case here with coronavirus. Thank goodness that is the case. What I am noticing, George, is that Dr. Fauci is not inclined to be suppressed. He's not one for being squelched when he has medically important information to share. And I'm seeing that play out in a delicate dance between himself and Mr. Trump and the Trump administration. Well, thank God for the scientists who speak their mind. This is not a political issue. This is a human issue. And, you know, I mean, these and these kinds of viruses can propagate so quickly and they can also mutate. Uh, so, you know, even looking down the road, we have to ask ourselves, uh, when this particular virus runs its course, uh, regardless of how well it's been contained, uh, it will be the only good thing that's come out of it is that it will raise awareness on this kind of pandemic and help us be better prepared for the next one, because it's, it's going to happen. We live in a global community where everybody is connected. And, uh, you know, who would have thought that one small bat uh, infecting one small animal would create this kind of catastrophe worldwide? It's, it's, it's just, it's almost unbelievable. We are so well connected now, and we were having this discussion uh, another day about how, you know, a thousand or two thousand years ago, if you wanted to go somewhere, you had two options. You could walk there or perhaps take a, a boat, some kind of a ship. And, uh, and now, with trains, planes, and automobiles, people get mixed up in this soup that we call Earth pretty quickly and pretty easily from one place to another. And, and so because of the uh, ease of mobility, it, we're also able to transmit these things very quickly as well. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Gary and I actually planned a spring trip that we are very concerned about taking at this point. And, you know, we're saying, well, we don't want to just stay home every day. You know, we do want to travel and get out. But now we're very concerned about getting on a plane. And, and I'm wondering what's going to happen with plane travel bef as this accelerates and, well, uh, right now, what's happened is that planes are now now uh, rescheduling. They're also canceling flights. Everybody that's flying is very aware that when you're in a plane, you're in a pressurized uh, metal enclosure, 35,000 35, feet, traveling 600 miles an hour, and uh, you're breathing recircula recirculated air. Yes. I just got back from Hawaii, and guy, and on the first leg of the trip, I turned to the guy next to me, and I said, you know, this isn't 
this isn't so bad. It was my last flight out of Huan was much much more crowded. And he said, and he looked at me, you know, thinking, gee, does he have the virus? I said, look, I'm just kidding. And he said, that's not funny. And it really isn't funny. It's really black yeah. humor. But the thing is right. that, um, you know, it's like with the Black Plague. I mean, they didn't even have a chance. The, the medical technology back then was so primitive that you, when you got sick, you simply died. It didn't matter what you got sick from. Uh, we didn't have the medical knowledge. But even with right. this enormous medical knowledge that we have now, uh, it's still going to take human trials to come up with a, with a vaccine, and a vaccine is about a year away at this point. And so at this point, we're fighting this. We're having to, you know, there's an offensive uh, ta- offensive tactics that you can take, which is aggressively trying to look at the um, virus and, and, and then figure out how to contain this but in, until we can get a vaccine. But um, we're in a defensive mode right now. Uh, the virus has got the upper hand and is simply propagating. All we can do is try to contain it as best as possible. And quarantine is necessary as opposed to incubating it by having people uh, stay on cruise ships where suddenly they affect er- infect everyone in the family right. or in China where they tell people, well, you better stay at home. And then they, affect ev- they infect everybody that's at home instead of isolating them and putting them in in hospital beds, which even China, you know, was able to ramp up and build new hospitals very quickly in a matter of two or three weeks, which is astonishing. But, uh, you know, if we had the same same outbreak here in in terms of numbers, uh, we would simply be overwhelmed because the medical, medical personnel just can't be replaced overnight. It takes years of training to have a nurse, to have a doctor, to have specialists. And these are the people on the front lines that are getting sick. So yeah. it, it is worrisome. Mm. And so, you know, yes. if you're going to travel, you have to take all the precautions about uh, trying to, you know, use the disinfectants and, and, and watching, you know, your contact with other people and all of that. It's, it's very worrisome, worrisome. And the travel industry is going to take a big hit this year. Yes. Oh, yeah. In fact, it's interesting. You were saying something about um, trillions of dollars earlier. Uh, When it comes to things like, you know, masks and hand sanitizers and test kits and things like that, those industries are going to flourish as they are trying to produce what is needed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have industries that will be almost non-existent or at least cut back by a huge percentage because people won't be doing that thing, whatever that is, Um, you know, maybe travel. I think the airlines are already suffering from that. And then how, what will be the trickle effect from that as well? Well, right now it's still too early to tell. Uh, We're now seeing all, all major industries uh, considering how to respond and how to deal with this by uh, deciding how they're going to handle the events that are scheduled and how they're going to handle normal business travel. Uh, you know, the London Book Fair, which is a big thing in the book industry, uh, that was canceled. Uh, that's not going to occur. So uh, we're really going to have to take a take a wait-and-see attitude to see how much further this is going to affect uh, international commerce, but it certainly will. And the key takeaway here is going to be the realization that China 
in other countries needs to stop and contain this kind of contagion before it gets out of hand. It's so much easier to dial it back and put the safeguards in place to minimize these events from even happening, as opposed to dealing with the consequences of these things uh, three months after the fact, when suddenly the entire world is infected and the entire world is going to be paying trillions of dollars in lost revenue. Uh, and, and, of course, I think the tourism industry especially is going to be affected. I mean, who's going, who wants to go to China now? Nobody. Nobody's <laughs> going to China. Yes. And, and you have to also remember that a lot of the factories there simply have closed down, and they're having to decide when they're going to let their people go back to work. I mean, Apple, of course, Apple uh, Inc. Has, has been affected because most of their things are made in China and then exported. And so, you know, we're so reliant, as is the whole world, on China ex- Chinese exports that when we have a contagion or a pandemic like this, uh, it not only affects people's health significantly, but it affects the world international trade market as well. For, for more than 50 years, I have been acutely aware of what was shown to me that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, that uh, Mm -hmm. prevention, preventing things from occurring, getting out ahead of things is far less expensive and takes far less time than trying to fix things after uh, they have gotten loose. And so when that that was shown to me, that really made a, a, a big, big impression on me. Well, I always talk about what I call the failure of imagination, and you have that all the time in big things and in small things in our lives. Uh, This is one of the big things. The Chinese government simply suffered a massive failure of imagination. Uh, They had a doctor who had gone on social media in December and started advising people not to go anywhere near the particular market where the virus began. And the Chinese went ahead and detained him, and they interrogated him and said, you know, you're spreading rumors, and you're scaring people, and you're doing this and doing that. Well, that poor doctor has since died. And, you know, the problem is that if in December China had clamped down and prevented planes from coming in and leaving, they wouldn't have spread, they wouldn't have, this thing would not have spread outside of China. But the Chinese government was so concerned about spreading fear that they just didn't understand what they were dealing with. And it was a massive failure of imagination. You know, George, this was not the topic we planned to talk to you about today, but we open up the microphone and pretty soon we're we're off in in another direction. We need to take a break. And when we come back, maybe we'll find some other things to talk about, things that we intended to talk to you about today. How does that sound? Well, I think that we should take a trek into some of these uh, franchises that, that are pop culture, uh, which, which is really your, your meat and bread and butter. So. Okay. Well, that sounds good. We are talking with George Beam, author of Too Many Books to Count, dozens, and he is our pop culture maven. This is his 13th visit. We're in our 13th year in March of 2020, and we are happy that you are listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk AM 1150. We'll be right back. 
The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick and proud aunt. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. One in six. That little girl sitting alone at the playground, she can't play like the other kids. She doesn't have the energy because she's hungry. School lunch will be her only meal today. It breaks my heart that this is the reality in our country, but it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. This food is then provided to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about using your imagination, learning, and having fun. These children shouldn't have to miss out on simply being a kid because they're hungry. To find out how you can help end childhood hunger in your community, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back George Bean, pop culture maven, with an update on Stephen King and the high cost of those streaming services. On Saturday, Bonnie Barnard returns with creating powerful affirmations that steer your life into the fast lane. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Giving local voices a chance to shine. Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our conversation with George Beam. He is extremely well-educated. He has a strong military background. He is a prolific author, and he has a lot to say. Whenever he's on, we love to listen to him. George, how's this for a segue? And wait a second. We have to do the right thing by George Beam. We call that the marketing piece. Well, I'm going to just keep that in. I'll hold it in abeyance for a moment while you tell us, George, if people want to get a hold of your books, they want to get more familiar with your titles and more familiar with you, where can they go online, for example, to find out more about George Bean? Well, you know, I'm not one of these people that uh, believe in the cult of personality. I believe in the the value of the, of the book. And by that, I mean that I'm not on social media. My website is really non-existent. Uh, I really like to just refer people to go to Amazon.com or to an independent bookseller uh, and look for my books, and if they don't find them, to ask for them. Uh, I just think that, th- that we live in a time where people feel like they've got to promote themselves as celebrities or personalities. I think that's the wrong thing. I believe very firmly in what Stephen King said, and he said that the book is the boss, and uh, it's all about the book. It's not about me. And I've always taken that to be my my motto because um, when people buy a book of mine, 
they really aren't interested in who I am. They're interested in what I have to say and, and what credentials I bring to the, to the table. So I would say, you know, check online, uh, and you'll, you'll find all of my books available, uh, new and used, uh, through independent booksellers and through major online booksellers, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, etc. I just want to make sure that everybody has the right spelling of your name. George, they should know how to spell. Beam is B-E-A-H-M, B-E-A-H-M, George Beam. I just want to make sure that that's out there so that when people look you up, they, they get the right George. Yep. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd name to have. You sometimes wish as an author that your name was something like John Smith. <laughs> That's right. You get Googled, there'd be a whole bunch of you, though. That's the only thing. Yeah, or maybe it's always something. Is, oh, yeah, or maybe your name is Steve King. That's another good one. <laughs> George, I did want to uh, pivot ever so slightly because we're talking about coronavirus and how people's lives are changing. And uh, that's certainly the case at the epicenter in America of the coronavirus epidemic, Washington State, and most notably Puget Sound. Let's say I need to make a change in my lifestyle, and I see that coming for millions and millions of people. I want to not be out in public so much. Suzanne and I and Suzanne's brother went out to dinner. It was a lovely time last night. I didn't feel like I was at risk, but I'm not trying to push it. I don't want to defy the odds. So I said to Suzanne, tonight let's have an indoor picnic. Let's go, I'll run to Mickey D's or I love my corn dogs, picnic foods, and let's just watch something on TV and enjoy these foods at home. With that being the case, George, what if I decide, okay, well, I like this show, that's on Netflix, and I like, okay, that one's on Amazon Prime, that show is good. It seems to me that... The problem with these subscription services is that you can't have a bite of the elephant. You can't just nibble at the trunk. You've got to buy the whole elephant. Yeah, and that's the problem with cable TV as well. And so what we've had is we've had a um, situation where we've gone from paying a lot of money for a lot of things that we don't want to see on cable TV and paying a lot of money for things we do want to see on non-cable TV outlets. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I enjoy the Star Trek franchise, and recently CBS Unlimited came out with Picard. Now, as with all popular culture, it's not really the show that you're inter interested in. It's the characters. So uh, Picard, I think, uh, from, a, from an actor's point of view, I think he was the best commander they've had in the series. When you look at all the different commanders they've had, to me, he comes across as being very credible as a military leader. And so I thought, well, you know, I really want to see what this show's all about. And I've been watching it, and I enjoy it. But, you know, I'm thinking, gee, if I want to see this, then what I'm really paying for is I'm paying for all these other things that I have access to that I don't want to see. I just want to see this one thing. And it's, and it's expensive. I mean, we, we now live in a time where we're overwhelmed by, by entertainment choices. And even in just... Uh, the area of TV and movies, it's exploded to the point where everybody is saying, hey, you know, we're not necessarily going to get into the book market to make money. We're going to get into the AV market, the movie market, the TV market, the streaming market. Uh, and it's, it's really 
very expensive when you start saying, I want to see this show on Hulu, I want to see this on CBS. If you're a Stephen King fan, for instance, that's a real problem because he's all over the map in terms of streaming videos. Uh, it would cost a fortune to subscribe to all these things if you want to see every single Stephen King movie or TV series that's going to come out. Yeah, you know, and I thought it was bad enough to have a, a variety of cable channels that you need to pay extra for you're, when you're trying to be as economical as you can. And there are a lot of channels that you can get for, uh, you know, your, your cable dollar. And yet, you know, if you want to see something new, popular, wonderful, there's the additional money for all of the specialty channels, whether it's sports or entertainment or movies or whatever it is, you have to pay extra. Now, I thought that was bad. Now, with the Internet, you've got the same thing replicated, but now it's as though each station has its own charge. So, you know, I could see where somebody could pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars each month. And as you said, they may only be watching one show on a particular station. Mm-hmm. That, that, that seems like it's, it's very uneconomical. And then it, it kind of, I chuckle when I think about the, the beginnings of TV back in the 50s and 60s where you only had three stations and at night the little Indian came, <laughs> Indian head came on. And he stuck around for hours. <laughs> yes, and you know, you have to remember that at one point in, in American history, uh, especially say the 30s, the 40s, uh, people simply read books. I mean, it was the heyday where, where authors could get big money, big money writing short stories for, ma- for major magazines. And now everything's completely changed. I mean, the big survey was done uh, with the Authors Guild, and the average full-time writer, make, full-time, I, I, I mind you, makes uh, approximately $20,000 a year. That's less than what you would get flipping hamburgers at McDonald's. Uh, but everything has shifted, shifted, toward visual media, because now we've got a new generation, and, and, and several generations actually, of young adults that have been, that have grown up on, on multimedia that has to be computer-based or movie-based or TV-based. It's visual material. And so I'm, I'm really concerned long-term about, uh, about books, because I think books are too expensive. I, you know, if you want a, a new John Grisham novel, you want a new Stephen King novel, you know, it's like 25 or 30 bucks retail. Uh, it's very expensive for something you're going to consume once. And you've got now a, a sensibility, especially among younger people, that uh, they don't want to be owners. They don't want to own libraries of books or movies or CDs. They just want it on demand uh, when they want it. They don't want to have, they don't want to be curators. So it's, yeah. It's just a different world that we're that we're moving into in terms of entertainment. Uh, it's a bigger world because now everybody is involved in in doing movies and TVs. I mean, it's a great time to be in Hollywood as an actor, I would imagine. But when you have companies like Apple deciding, along with Amazon, to get into the movie making business or the TV making business with streaming media, they go because that's where the move that's where the money is. And CBS, I think, owns. Simon and Schuster, which is Stephen King's publisher, and they've decided they're going to drop, um, they're going to sell uh, their interest in Simon and Schuster because 
They just don't see the growth there in the book industry as they have seen in the uh, film and TV industry. So it's, it's very much a changing world in terms of pop culture. You know, you use the word curator, and uh, this really rings true for me. Uh, Gary and I are both very avid readers, and I prefer a physical uh, paper book. And mm -hmm. so we have shelves and shelves of books. And, you know, at night before I go to sleep, I've got a book next to me on the nightstand, and I pick that up and read a few pages, partly because... Our doctor has said it's not a good idea to have that blue light in your eyes activating your brain before you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. So he said it's a good idea to, to read a book or do something to transition from television into sleep. And, yeah. and so, you know, I enjoy reading. I enjoy magazines. I enjoy books. And I like to do that. And at the same time, this idea of being a curator I have so many books, and Gary has so many books, that we have been trying to uh, clear out some of the shelves of some of the books that we have, and and I can understand not wanting that. When, when we'll go on a trip, Gary takes his iPad, and he says, I have all the books I need right in here. Right. right. Well, and, you know, and, I, think, I think when you travel, uh, bulk is a big issue, and I also embrace ebooks and stuff like that when I'm traveling. But if I'm at home, I have the luxury of being able to pull a book off the, off the shelf. Uh, we have a collection of probably 20,000 books. Uh, we inherited a bunch from a book collector uh, who, who spent his entire life literally collecting nothing but uh, books of, of fantasy, science fiction, and then a lot of general nonfiction. And um, people who love books, are people that really like to, to have a more immersive environment, a more active environment, uh, whereas I think movies really is a very passive experience. All you have to do is just sit there and absorb what you see in front of you. But as Stephen King points out, when you read a book, it engages your imagination. And I think that's a good thing. I think that, that readers should be part of and participatory with uh, the medium that they're engaged with. And that's what reading does. And yes, I also agree that, uh, you know, from a health point of view, uh, watching blue light is simply going to, to keep your, your brain um, stimulated in such a way that you're not going to be able to get to sleep as easily. There's nothing like, like sitting down and reading a chapter or two of a book before you go to bed. Right. Better than a sleeping pill. But, you know, when, when we go right from the news or the, a movie or late-night TV right to bed, that's way, way too stimulating. Well, and, and, and so and I like that little bit of a transition. Yeah, especially so when you consider that most people are, are literally spending a disproportionate amount of their uh, time, personally and professionally, looking at screens. Yes. Yes, very true. Yeah. Between the, the tablets and the computers and the television, we're, we're definitely saturated with the oh, blue yeah. light. I mean, and not, and not to mention the iPhones. I mean, I can't even drive anywhere without people driving, and then they're holding up their iPhone, and they're talking to them and watching them. You know, they're just so, it's like, it's like electronic uh, cocaine. Uh, I don't want to have people driving around me, uh, taking left, taking right, and, and holding up a cell phone. 
you know, I'd like for them to concentrate on, on the road. That would be a good idea. I got the iPhone 10. We didn't go whole hog for the iPhone 11, mainly because I think that the, the big advances in the camera, and I have several cameras, I have a small collection of them, so I didn't need that. But Suzanne and I decided that we would get the iPhone 10s, which was an upgrade by several orders of magnitude compared to right. what we had. And looking at that, I thought, okay, now how do I use this safely? Lo and behold, I found out that there is a feature. I can't remember whether it was a function within the phone, which it might be, or if it was an app. I guess it was within the phone. But when I'm you in have the an iPhone? I have yes. an iPhone. Okay. And I don't get to use it. I don't know if anyone is calling me or texting me, and that's the cure. Right. Because curiosity well, will kill a cat and a human. And so if it's there in my pocket and it's not ringing and it's not able to be activated unless I change the setting, I don't worry about it because nothing that they could be communicating to me is worth my life. Right. Well, if everybody felt that way, we, we would have fewer deaths on the road. Uh, but the thing is that with rights, come, with rights come responsibilities. And if you want the right to drive a five to 6,000-pound vehicle, that's going 50 to 60 miles an hour, you have the responsibility to do it safely, if not only for your life and someone else's. I mean, it's, it's you know, getting behind a vehicle is like driving a uh, anything that's going to be large and, and it's going to have the momentum uh, because of the laws of physics, and it can be a deadly instrument. It can kill people. And so we see that all the time. But people need to, you know, the big thing, the big lesson in life that I like to tell everybody is, Pay attention to what you're doing. We live in such a distracted society now that it's very difficult for people to pay attention. It's like when you go to the retail store and you say, gee, I'd like to get, a, I'd like to get the hamburger and hold the uh, onions and cheese. And she's typing all this stuff in, or the guy's typing all this stuff in. And then when he's finished, he says, did you want cheese with that? And you're thinking, gee, I just told you I didn't, but you don't tell them that. Uh, people have lost the ability to really pay attention to what other people are saying. True. Yes. It's a real yes. problem. Notice this. Yeah. And when you and, and and you think about that when you get older and you're gonna be in some hospital or nursing home and somebody is jacking with their coworker and they give you the wrong medication. Right. Because they aren't paying attention. I mean these things matter. My 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 dad was an insurance agent for almost forty years. It was his second career and he was with it for a long time. And when I turned 16 and I got my driver's license, he said to me, I've taken thousands of accident reports, thousands. And he mm -hmm. said, in not one single accident report that I have ever taken, has anybody said I was just driving? That's all I was doing. Right. He said, every accident report says I was putting on makeup, drinking mm -hmm. a cup of coffee, answering the phone you know, uh, combing my hair. He said, I have never once taken an accident report where they said I wasn't doing anything but driving. He said, so when you get behind the wheel, just drive and don't do anything else but drive. And I thought that was very, very sage advice that uh, I, I have kept with me since I was 16 years old. Man who took the report said, just drive when you're That's in right. the car. Don't do anything else. Don't play with the radio. Don't do anything but drive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's how you stay safe. <laughs> George, we have about three minutes left, so I just wanted to throw something at you because I have an idea for your next book. 
I just wanted to throw this at you. Wouldn't it be great if George Beam wrote a book about the sitcom universe of Chuck Lorre? as a survey of all that that man has accomplished and his very fertile mind and how it's turned out so many successes, perhaps chief among them, one of the great sitcoms of all time, The Big Bang Theory, but many others besides. There, wouldn't that be fun to go through his biography and his creative process and put it between the covers of a book? Mm, yeah, yes, it would. But, you know, the, the problem, the problem is we only have three minutes. The problem is twofold. The first thing is that every single year, you know, I'm very, very aware of the passage of time now. Um, I, had a, my, I had a brother who was 10 years younger than me, and he just passed on because he started smoking and then didn't stop and wound up getting lung cancer and dying. And it really kind of hit home to me that, that we have so little time in life. Uh, it doesn't matter what age you are. Uh, you're going to wake up one day and say, gee, I'm not 20. I'm 30. I'm not 30. I'm 40. And, and time just keeps moving on. And so you have to say, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? What are you going to do with that precious time? And so when I think about book projects, you know, the constraint is that I've got to write books that I know are going to make money because it takes me about a half a year to write a book. And, uh, and right now, you know, I'm, I am not writing any book per se. I'm updating the Stephen King Companion for an Italian publisher. Um, but beyond that, you know, I'm sitting down and and I've listened to what my agent said. I've listened to what my book publisher at St. Martin's Press has said. And uh, I'm having to recalibrate because actually pop culture is shifting more toward movies and TVs and, and especially shifting toward the Internet. And so a lot of people are finding out much of what they want, want to know about pop culture in a way that when I did the first King Companion in 1989, uh, the Internet wasn't as popular and prevalent, and people did rely on other other media to get their news. So like every other writer, I'm sitting down and thinking, you know, how can I reinvent myself? Uh, so right now what I'm doing is I'm working on novels because I've always wanted to write novels. I, I love reading novels, and I thought it's time to finally write, start writing novels as a, as a change of pace and as a challenge. So, you know, that's, that's the nature of life. Uh, you have to, you have to, well, I don't want to say like a virus you have to mutate and change, but huh. I think that as a writer, uh, you you really hope that that you if you do nothing else, you've infected people with a love of reading and uh, infected them with a, a love of going to bookstores because I think that the bookstores are just absolutely critical. And when you look at pop culture and you look at all the major franchises, uh, James, you know, with, with James Bond. Uh, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Jurassic Park, uh, DC Comics, Marvel Comics. All of these things came from, from pop culture and from literature. Yes, they did. And they will keep coming, particularly where they intersect with the mind and imagination of George Beam. Time for us to go. George, thanks so much. We look forward to your next visit. Well, this was great fun as usual, and I can't believe it's been an hour. Yep, us too. Have Thank you, George. Have a great weekend, Have a great George. weekend. Stay tuned for the Christine Upchurch show, followed by the Susan Harmon experience, and then American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.